This is ReachMD XM Satellite Radio. Welcome to Clinician's Roundtable. I'm Dr. Maurice Pickard, and I would like to welcome Dr. Michael Ankit, our guest, who is the Chicago Bears internist and pulmonary specialist. Today, we will be discussing sports injuries. Thank you, Dr. Ankin, for joining us this afternoon. Well, it's a pleasure to be here, Maury. Is there anything unique that you have found in your association with the Chicago Bears or, for that matter, any other professional team? It's certainly not the same type of scenario that one sees being a primary care doctor to most of the population. In some respects, professional athletes, one, are basically healthy people. They've been selected out over the process of their high school and college playing, and in some respect, being an internist for a professional team is not really the same thing as being a primary care doctor and that there's a lot more proactive care that's given to these professional athletes than our general population. The purpose of the internist to a professional team is to ensure that that player is able to play. One, screening them before they're drafted or are hired to make sure there's not some significant medical problem that may interfere with them fulfilling their contract. And two, during the season, ensuring that these guys are relatively healthy. Basically, the orthopedic surgeons are basically the busiest during and after the game, whereas the internist is mostly busy before the game, making sure that the player is okay, uh, what did he eat last night, uh, how do I get rid of this diarrhea, and we deal with certain things that really happen. Certainly, we have some players with underlying diseases like everyone else does, but for the most part, they're really not your sickest individuals. On the other hand, a lot of times what we're really dealing with during a game situation is dehydration and head trauma. You know, it's interesting that you bring up head trauma or traumatic brain injury. People are always talking about, well, he just got dinged, and then as he recovers, he's shaking it off. As a physician, this kind of always bothers me because it seems to make light of head injuries. I wonder what your response would be to that. Well, I think that the National Football League has really been at the forefront of this problem. I think that this is obviously something that happens a lot where concussions have been a big part of what's going on. And in some respect, the database that we have sort of always had used in the past came from the neurologist. And the neurologist had a grading system for concussion. This was a grade one, a grade two, a grade three. And about six, seven years ago, the NFL said, listen, we weren't seeing some of the things that were talked about in the literature. There was a lot in the neurological literature about second impact syndrome, and if you had a second injury before you recovered from the first one, then some bad thing would befall you. The National Football League financed some high-power, good scientific research. Whenever there was a, uh, a head injury, and we tend to take this term mild traumatic brain injury as opposed to concussion because it included all of those things. In other words, it was any kind of alteration uh, of consciousness, and you didn't have to lose consciousness. You could have had a ding. You could have been dazed. You could have been stunned. You could have been woozy. Any of those things applied. Every time a player had any kind of mild traumatic brain injury, a report had to be made out. The report was consistent through all 31 teams. These reports were then submitted to the NFL, 
And the NFL contracted with several groups of people. There was an outfit out in California that would take your report, go get the game film, and on the report, it actually specifically say this was helmet-to-helmet contact, front of the helmet, back of the helmet, side of the helmet. And then they would actually recreate the injury with a set of crash test dummies. And they had crash test dummies with regular helmets with sensors inside the helmet, and they would recreate this injury the best they could and study the various impacts that that had. And from that came a whole vast group of knowledge. And actually the NFL, with the NFL, has actually published a series of four or five articles in the neurology journals or the neurosurgery journals that were peer-reviewed type of things. And what they actually found on that were things that were different than what we found in the literature. Apparently, things are different for professional football players. In other words, we found no evidence of any second impact syndrome. This did not occur. We also found that there was no difference in the grading system. In the grading system that the neurologists used, those grades really didn't correlate to what we saw on these adults. And I think that now what we've learned is there is a difference between professional football players and high school football players. That brain injury may be different. They have people out in California. They're studying this with PET scans. They're studying this with all sorts of techniques to try to get an understanding of what really is this. What they came up with is this is really a metabolic dysfunction. There are changes that they can see with PET scanning uh, on these injuries that are related to potassium fluxes and calcium accumulation and the mitochondria not working well. And the sum total of this was to create better equipment. The NFL does a whole lot of funding of research towards improving equipment. Now, all of a sudden, there's new helmets, and the new helmets were designed out of this research to protect areas of their head that were vulnerable in the past with the old-style helmets. Dr. Inken, I know that you have a special interest in sleep disorder breathing and how it may affect the professional athlete. I wonder if you could tell us your thoughts about that. Over the course of the last half a dozen years, the interest in sleep apnea or obstructive sleep apnea has really increased a lot. This was something that used to be relatively rare. And now with better knowledge, uh, looking for it more and better testing, we're finding things that individuals that have this problem that never really had it before. The literature says that about 2% of the general population has sleep apnea. The question really came to be is that, well, okay, fine, sleep apnea seems to be more prevalent in larger people or people that had large necks or small mouths or many of the parameters. And really what happened is that about four or five years ago, one of the physicians from the New York Giants came up with the idea that, hey, if sleep apnea is more prevalent in big guys, then, hey, there seems to be a lot of big guys playing professional football. And the issue originally was, yeah, if we could identify that these people had sleep apnea, could you, in fact, treat them, and make them better football players. This was uh, funded in part by the NFL, and they do a lot of research on a variety of topics on this. And eight teams got together, donating maybe a dozen, 20 guys per team. They randomly picked them. Half the people were 
regular size people. These were the running backs and the defensive cornerbacks and those people. And the other half of the people were larger people, mostly linemen. Everybody had a bunch of anthropomorphic measurements, and we looked in their mouth and gave their scale of that. And then they underwent and they actually came out here, and they actually did sleep studies on these individuals. What we found is that over 300 players in the study, it turned out that in the small guys, yeah, 3% of the population had sleep apnea. If you looked at the large guys, over 30% of them had sleep apnea. And I think that that's a significant disparity. And I think that, you know, in some respect, your incidence of this illness has to do with what population you're screening. If, in fact, you only pick large people, you're going to get a much higher percentage of having that. The issue was, yes, we did identify this. And this was certainly good information for everything that we had sort of known and suspected. Unfortunately, one of the problems that we had was it was hard to do the second part of the study. You know, it was very hard to get people into therapy because basically these were active players. Active players have active agents. Active agents are there to protect the interest of the active player. And players don't want to be identified with anything. Their sense is it devalues them if, in fact, they are going to be traded or renegotiated their contract. So a lot of players don't really want to volunteer for a study like this. And in fact, hey, of the guys that we donated to it, the two people that I thought were the most suspect didn't want to participate. What is the treatment for sleep apnea, and how would that possibly affect their value as a professional athlete? To me, and my counseling to them is that, hey, why was this going to devalue? If anything, it's going to make you better. If you did get treatment, and the treatment of this basically is CPAP or or positive airway pressure, and it's not the greatest technique for football players or anybody, and the compliance rate for this is relatively poor, no matter who you are, until you get to the point where you actually see the difference in your daytime sleepiness or how you perform. When these players quit playing football and are not in the same condition that they were before, and they gain even more weight, uh, then their sleep apnea becomes worse. And listen, you don't have to be that profound a sports fan to look and see a bunch of 50-something-year-old ex-football players who are dropping dead. They may be big. They may weigh 300 pounds, but they're in considerably better shape than any of us are. And they can do more wind sprints than I could ever dream of doing. And for the most part, most of these people are healthy intelligent businessmen who happen to be in the business of doing something they love. And I would like to thank our guest today, Dr. Michael Enkin, who is the Chicago Bears internist and pulmonary specialist. Thank you for listening.